Amen. Well, we're continuing on in our short mini-series of expository preaching through certain passages about worship, what we do when we gather. That's the main question, the main premises around all this. What is it that we do when we all gather as a church? And really, why do we do it? What is the basis of it? And how does it attach to our, our lives in Christ, our lives of worship? And today, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 19-17. through 17. So turn there, if you will. And we're going to be talking about fellowship. I know I mentioned the word fellowship a lot when we gather, how fellowship is worship. In fact, I've said that some of the most important time of ministry that will happen throughout the entire week, and perhaps the most important, is your fellowship together with one another. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. It's Some of you are, are particularly gifted at fostering the, the fellowship in this church, but this will... Lord willing, be one of the most absolutely challenging passages we will come across. This will be one of the most challenging things that that I have to preach over because this is something that we do every week. In fact, it's something that in a healthy church, it's happening every day among believers. Now hear me out. Fellowship, when done right in a godly, Christ-honoring way, is the crown jewel of a healthy church. Fellowship is the thing that the outside world looking in can see, and even though they they don't even acknowledge God yet, the Holy Spirit might be working on their hearts, but they can see that something is different with these people who are gathered here together and how they fellowship with one another than just any other social club or grouping of people together. Fellowship is something that when done right is the crown jewel of a healthy church. Yet. It's also an area where our deepest fissures and faults and spiritual sickness can be exposed. So let's dive in. Starting in verse 9, we read, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. So we have the old self, which is put off, and the new self, which we have put on. Now understand that there are not two selves inside of you if you are a believer. You are not Jekyll and Hyde. There are not two of you that are in battle with one another. And this is a bit of a misunderstanding that Christians have sometimes, is it not? You know, sometimes we think that, well, oh, the there's the new me, but the bad me sometimes creeps in and does the things that I know not to do. And, and the new me, who is in Christ, knows better and walks righteously. No, understand, if you are in Christ, if you are saved, there is only one you. There's the new self. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The old you died with Christ and the new you has come. The new you has no power or ability to save the old you. The old you was dead and lost and depraved. Good riddance to the old you. The old you needed to die so that Christ could raise up the new you. You may be saying, well, what is this about You know, when I, I battle with sin? And we'll get there. Look, the old self is the self that would have stood before God condemned in all of your sin and guilt. So, <laughs> 
Thank the Lord that that old self is dead and gone, right? The new self is the you that will stand before God cleansed of all your sin and guilt because of Christ. So you may ask yourself, well, don't I still battle sin? Isn't that war waging within me still? Isn't there the old and the new self? No, it's not the old and the new you. Of course we still battle sin. We still do the things that we know not to do and fail to do the things that we should do. Yes, amen, we do. But that's because the new you still lives in the body and battles the flesh. Not because of the old spiritual you is still alive. No, that is dead. But spiritually, you have put off the old self and you have put on the new self. And the new self, as we read here, is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. So here we see that the new self is constantly being renewed throughout our walk with Christ. You know, this is in many ways what we would refer to as progressive sanctification, a lifelong process. Once the old you died and Christ raised up the new you, the new you, of course, is saved. Yes. The day that you receive Christ, the day of your salvation, you are as saved and secure in Christ in your salvation as you'll ever be this side of eternity. But that new you doesn't stop growing. That new you doesn't stop growing right there and when you take your first step of faith. And as you grow, as you add to your faith knowledge, you are transformed more and more into the image of the One who created you and the One who saved you. Again, the, the old self had no ability to become more like Jesus Christ. The old self was running 180 degrees in the opposite direction from becoming more and more like Christ. But the new self will inevitably become more like Jesus Christ. So, since we have put on the new self, this risen life in Christ has a profound transformative impact on our individual life. It's something that I, I trust all of you are experiencing as you're, as you're growing in Christ, but it also has a profound impact on our collective life of fellowship in the church. And that is where this passage is leading into. Us as new selves, all of us as new selves have been brought together into a community of faith to live out the new life together. We've been brought here. And as verse 11 says, in here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. There's not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, why, why did I read that twice? Well, I think we just need to step back for a moment and appreciate how radical and how transformative this statement really is. I mean, we kind of just stumble over it and we say, yeah, yeah, we get it. We're, we're all saved by, by Christ. But I mean, this is staggering stuff. I want you guys to appreciate just the profound impact of, of the gospel and the new life in Christ. So let's dig into this. First of all, a Greek and a Jew would have had absolutely nothing to do with each other in the time that this was written. Now, 
the Greek here is just a catch-all term for Gentile or non-Jew. And a non-Jewish male was uncircumcised, we know that, and the Jewish male was circumcised, which in and of itself is a huge deal because circumcision was the sign that you were in the Old Covenant. But far beyond just the procedure of circumcision, let's see, the Jewish people would not buy anything from a Gentile grocer. They would not eat any meal prepared to them by a Gentile. And much more than that, they would not even enter the house of a Gentile. They would have nothing to do with them whatsoever. In fact, you know, because the Gentiles were unclean. Beyond that, whenever a Jew would return to Israel in this time, they would shake the dust from the Gentile lands off of their cloak and off of their sandals, just saying, good riddance to that Gentile dust. The Gentiles were unclean. Well, that was the culture and customs of the Jewish people. And we know that the gospel completely dismantled those barriers, grafting in Gentiles and people from all walks of life and different nations into the same spiritual family and the new selves that were put on. The new lives in Christ came from both Jewish and Gentile. But what about those Greeks? Those progressive Greeks? You know, surely they weren't so ethnocentric and standoffish and close-minded to people different than them. No, but this goes on to say here that there's no distinction between Greek and barbarian. You see, to the educated, the cultured Greeks who had Aristotle and Plato and philosophy and scholarship and magnificent statues and buildings, the barbarians were just a a catch-all term for non-Greek, non-civilized people groups people who had not been Hellenized or influenced by Greek culture. In fact, the word barbarian itself is an onomatopoeia. Uh, it's a word that sounds like what it's describing, like the word clap or bang. you know. And so barbarian is a word to describe foreign peoples because the Greek language was the language of the civilized world and people groups outside of Greek influence their language just sounded like a monotonous bar, bar, bar to these people. It sounded like gibberish, like nonsense. So they referred to people outside of the Greek world as barbarians. Both the sophisticated Greeks and the educated Jews would look upon the so-called barbarians with scorn and derision. But the gospel had broken down these barriers of racism and bigotry. And while the barbarians were considered unsophisticated and lowly and obviously treated with scorn, the Scythians, they were hated and feared. They were feared for good reason. The Scythians were a nomadic clan of warring people who ransacked villages all throughout the Near East. They were described by Josephus and others as being hardly above animals. And here I think Scythian is used as a term as a capture for all of the people groups hated by Jews and Greeks alike. But the gospel had even broken down these ethnic barriers. But even within Greek and Roman society, class barriers still existed. 10 to even as much as 20% of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. Now Aristotle, I mentioned him earlier, famous Greek classic philosopher, He referred to slaves 
as living tools. A slave and a free man would never marry. They would never associate with one another. They would certainly never become friends. But the gospel had even broken down these class barriers. People from all classes and social statuses were joining together in communion and fellowship, uplifting one another. So much to the point that when Paul writes Philemon about Onesimus, he tells him to receive Onesimus not as a slave, but as a beloved brother. See, in the church, such worldly class distinctions no longer existed. Free men, masters, and the rich would serve the church alongside of slaves alongside of the poor, alongside of the working class. And slaves would even be trained and raised up to be pastors and elders to lead the church. And this unity is is demonstrated to the utmost degree, no more poignantly than the fact that in many cases, the rich and slaves alike would be standing hand in hand, singing praises to the Lord, as they faced wild beasts to be martyred for their common faith in Jesus Christ. You see, in the church, Christ has brought souls from all walks of life into new life, life that is shared together, an elect nation, a royal priesthood, a family, a fellowship. So we started this off with uh, put off. You've put off the old self. You've put on the new self. And that language for put off and put on is the, are the same verbs that just like in our language we use for clothing. You know, when I get home or perhaps when I get to my car, I'm going to put off this suit jacket because it's going to be pretty warm outside. I'm going to put on shorts and a t-shirt. You know, this is saying once and for all, you've put off the old self. You've once and for all put on the new self. But we see here that there are qualities or attributes or articles of spiritual clothing, if you will, that are not befitting of the new self and those that are. Things that we constantly have to remind ourselves to be putting on. And throughout this whole chapter, if you read that, you'll see that theme. Articles of spiritual clothing that you put off because they're not befitting of the new self that you have put on. And then articles of spiritual clothing or qualities or attributes or mindsets that you are to put on. So in the context of our fellowship in a community of faith, these spiritual clothes are befitting of the new self, the new self that's existing in a community of new selves. And I don't mean when I say spiritual clothes, collared shirt or a tie or dry clean pants. Although if you want to know my opinion, I I must say that cowboy boots are a very fresh look for our church here. But we have been brought as new selves into this community of faith. And what should we adorn our new selves with? What is the dress code of our hearts when we fellowship? Because you see, as amazing of a verse as verse 11 is, where we see that all those distinctions are broken down and we've been brought together as one, the fact of the matter is we still have to live with one another. We have to love one another. And it won't always be easy. So in order to do that, what do we put on? And we come to verse 12 here, we read, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So first we see, put on compassionate hearts. Look, understand here, if you cannot exhibit compassion to every brother and sister in your local church, then you will certainly not be able to exhibit it to those out in the world who need the Gospel so desperately. No way, no how. Now to put on compassionate hearts, what that really means is to be able to perceive and and care for the needs of others as deeply as if they were our own needs. Now, to care and perceive the needs of others and feel them as deeply as if they were our own needs, to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn as if we were going through the same thing that they are going through, that sounds insane and impossible. That sounds so radical. And that's because it is radical. It runs so contrary to our own instincts and our own flesh to look out after what we want. And that's because it is something that's only capable of being a new self in Christ. It's something only the new self is capable of putting on. But we see here also, put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Put on patience. Through all these, we see this idea of of gentleness. of of thinking of others before ourselves, of dying to what our flesh wants, letting go of our preferences and our demands, not insisting on our own importance, not holding on to grudges. We see this idea of self-sacrifice. And we see bearing with one another. Now, this puts a lot of those virtues into practice. It brings them from the level of theoretical into just nuts and bolts daily life. Because sometimes exhibiting all of these virtues is just as simple as finding a way to be able to get along. People will get on your nerves. Look around you to the left and to the right. People in this church will get on your nerves. You may be thinking about how some of them have gotten on your nerves relatively recently or in the past or something like that or how they probably will get on your nerves. People will inconvenience you. I don't think I'm I'm giving any information that's a surprise to anyone. People will annoy you. Now, many of the complaints that you may have against one another are areas where you simply just need to get over yourselves. You know, living in fellowship with others, even as new selves, will demand compassionate hearts. It will require humility and meekness, and people will stretch your patience. All of those virtues that are listed above will be put to the test when living in community with one another. And quite frankly, we're going to be able to need to be able to get over ourselves and put up with one another. So there's a measure of long suffering that is required, but it goes on beyond that. It says, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Like I said, you will have complaints against one another. You do have complaints. People are going to inconvenience you. They're going to annoy you. 
And many of these complaints are simply areas where you got to be able to get over yourself. That's humility in practice. That's meekness in practice. That's bearing with one another in a nutshell is getting over yourself. But some of these complaints are valid. They at least may seem valid to you in the sense that someone has committed a sin and you perceive yourself as the casualty of that sin. Maybe it's in how they talk to you, how they treated you. And the answer that we're given here is to not to settle the score. It's not to get your pound of flesh. It's to forgive. And that all seems pretty elementary to the Christian, but just notice here, just as nearly everywhere else in the New Testament, the command for you to forgive is paired with the ultimate, absolute, indisputable standard of forgiveness itself. There is no wiggle room here. There is no caveat for forgiveness or when you don't need to forgive. Saying, you have been forgiven by the Lord. You. If you are in Christ, you have been forgiven by the Lord. You were a rebel against Him. You were hostile to Him. You were rejecting Him. You were running away from Him. And He took your sins upon Himself on the cross and paid for them and welcomed you into eternal, unbroken fellowship with Him. In the same absolute way, so you also must forgive. So let me be absolutely clear here when we're talking about this all in the scope of fellowship. If any of you has a complaint against another here, if any of you has resentment or distaste or a barrier between you and someone else here, do not delay. Do not let it simmer. Do not let it fester. Do not wait a day. Do not wait a minute. Forgive them as you have been forgiven. If there's some way that you need to reconcile with someone, then please find them. Do it today. If they're here, do it before you leave these doors today. If they're somewhere else, do it as soon as possible because Jesus is as crystal clear as anyone can possibly be on this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. But then we come to verse 14. And it says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, love encapsulates all of this. We know from 1 Corinthians 13 what love is and what love isn't. Love is patient. We were told to put on patience, if you recall. Love is kind. We were told to put on kindness. Love is not proud. We were told to put on humility. Love is not rude. We were told to put on meekness. Love is not self-seeking and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love is the heart of fellowship. Love is the beauty of a believer and the beauty of a church. But if if we fail to love, then we failed at everything we do here. 
everything. If we've missed this, then we've missed the entire point. If we've missed this, then, then the truth isn't even in us. So put on love. It's what holds everything together. Then we come to verse 15 where we read, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we first come to let the peace of Christ rule. Let the peace of Christ rule. Now, this word for rule is the same word. It's only used here in the Scripture, this uh, Greek word for, for rule. And it was a word that was commonly used to describe an umpire in athletic contests. One that would judge inbounds, out of bounds. You know, within the rules, against the rules. A fair strike in a boxing match or an illegal hit. An umpire. So let the peace of Christ rule like an umpire in athletic contest, like a judge passing judgment over your actions and your attitudes and your heart and your interactions. Let the peace of Christ be the guideline. Let the peace of Christ be the rules of how you play the game. What this is saying is that Christ has eternally won us peace with God. A peace that we could have never earned on our own merits. We were given by grace. And now we're living in that peace and we're called to exhibit that peace to one another as a spiritual virtue in our lives and in our interactions. So let that peace of Christ that is in you be the umpire. Let it determine, is my mindset or my words or my actions, is it fair or foul? in bringing about peace with my brothers and sisters to which I've been called? Does this attitude or or action or interaction conform to, to that reality that I'm living in, that eternal peace with God won to me by Christ? Does it exemplify that in the peace that I'm called to live with others? Let the peace of Christ rule. Because after all, this verse is specifically about our fellowship with one another. As it says, to which indeed you were called in one body. So we have let the peace of Christ rule in you and let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the Scripture live in you. Let it take its home up in you. Let it be a part of what people see in you and what you exhibit outside of you because it's part of your DNA. It's who you are. Now in order to let the Word of Christ dwell in us, we first and foremost must know what the Word of Christ is. The Word can't dwell in you and and shape you and transform you you if you don't know it. And you can't know the Word if you aren't learning it. You can't learn the Word if you aren't committing yourself to paying attention when the Word is taught or committing it to memory or studying the Word in your own time. And those are all things that, that I've encouraged all of you to do. And many of you take a, a specific uh, spiritual task to do in your daily lives. But beyond knowing the Word, what it says here is let it dwell in you. Immerse yourself in the Word. Internalize it. Commit it to practice. Let it transform you. Let the Holy Spirit control you by the Word. 
Be that kind of person that when someone looks at you and they, they could say, wow, that is a godly way of living. That is a Christ-like way of, of talking, of handling tense situations. That is a person controlled by the Word. So ask yourselves, does the Word of Christ dwell in you? Is it a part of the very fiber of who you are as a new self in Christ? Are you filled with the Scripture? When you're squeezed, what flows out of you? Does the Word of Christ flow out of you? When you're pricked, when you're tried, when you're pressed, is it Scripture that comes out of you? Because the Word of Christ dwelling in us is not just for us individually. Of course, it's infinitely beneficial for us in our own personal lives and our relationship with our Creator to have the Word dwelling in us, but we're talking about the heart of fellowship here, and that's what this passage is dealing with, of living out our faith in a community of faith. So ultimately, the Word of Christ dwelling in us benefits the community by what comes out of us. And if the Word of Christ is dwelling richly in us, what does come out of us? Well, we see right here, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, teaching and admonishing are, are very similar. They're just a, a positive and a negative side of things, if you will. Both of them are, are meant to deliver scriptural information to a brother or a sister. It's to deliver information and truth that is wise and instructive. But after all, if the Word of Christ is what dwells in you richly, when the Word of Christ is what is part of you, the Word of Christ will be what you teach others. It's how you're going to encourage others. It's how you're going to give advice and counsel. It will be from the Word of Christ. So, teaching is instructing someone in positive truth. It's spurring them on and encouraging them toward what is Christ-like. Now, on the flip side, admonishing is to warn others. It's to point out destructive behavior in their life. It's just the other side of teaching. Now, both are constructive, both are necessary, but they are only as constructive as they are biblical. Understand, if you deem yourself wise or have many wise things to impart on other people, the wisdom of your teaching and admonishing will only be as wise as it is the words of Christ. It will only be as valid as it is scriptural. After all, we went through 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we read that the Word is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So, if the Word of Christ dwells in you, the first thing that will come out of you to edify others in fellowship is teaching and admonishing with all wisdom. But we see more here. If the Word in Christ, of Christ dwells in you, then out of you will also come singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We'll be expressing those attributes of worship. If the Word of Christ dwells in us, we can't help but sing and express worship. Now, Psalms, of course, are referring to the book of Psalms, which were songs. They were music as an expression to God. They come from the Old Testament Psalter. Now, all of the Psalms with a capital P that would ever be written were written, and they're in our book of Psalms. Now, hymns, on the other hand, were being written 
in the first century when Paul wrote this, and they've been written in every single century since. They are hymns are being written right now. They were written in the 1700s, the 1800s, the first century, second century, third, all the way down. Now, spiritual songs, on the other hand, seem to emphasize something kind of like a personal testimony of here's what God did for me. And oftentimes, hymns and spiritual songs can be used interchangeably. But rather than genre or or style, the emphasis here is that God delights in our worship, just like we talked about last week. God delights in our singing. Beyond that, since not just psalms are here, but also hymns and spiritual songs, God delights in our creativity. Fellowship includes collective worship, but it also includes creative worship. Now, I was so blessed and honored to see, to see what Ellie had to share for us on the piano today and what others have shared with us because God delights when we meet as a community of faith to see others exhibit their creativity in worship. But again, the emphasis isn't on the genre or the style, but on the content. The emphasis is on the heart behind it. And what is the heart behind it? What is in your heart here? It says thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we have singing in your hearts. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we're just supposed to sing in our hearts. We're supposed to use our voices. We covered that last week. Shout to joy and sing to God. But what this means, what singing in our hearts means, is that our heart must match our lips. If the Word of Christ dwells in you, then out will come singing and we'll do so because we have thankfulness for what He has done for us. Now to close here with verse 17, it says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now perhaps the most important point about fellowship is remembering who it's ultimately for. That's right. Even in our our interaction with one another. Our fellowship is for one another. But even beyond that, it's ultimately for our Lord and Savior. Now since we're covering what we do when we gather and why and how it's all worship, some of you may be wondering, well, really, how is fellowship worship? I understand how singing is worship. I can even understand how giving is worship or how learning the Word is worship. But how can fellowship be worship? Well, the answer is right here. It's because we Worship when we fellowship because we do it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Fellowship is worship because just like every other area of worship, it requires sacrifice. Look, I understand you you may not have anything left in your tank to give. You may be introverted or even if you're extroverted, you may be socially exhausted when we gather. You may be burnt out Or even beyond that, you may be filled with cares and anxieties and all the things that go on in your life that happen seven days a week. And the last thing that you want to have to do when we gather is to give more of yourself for someone else. With all the burdens that you're carrying, you don't want to have to bear someone else's burden. But the new you does. The new self does. The new self does because the new self has put on love. 
The new self, the new you bears with one another. The new you forgives one another. The new you has put on compassionate hearts. And the new you does everything for your Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that our fellowship, the peace of Christ dwelling in us, ruling in us, the Word of Christ dwelling in us, all coming together in a community of faith and playing out in everything that we do, not just on Sunday morning, but day to day, week to week. I pray that our fellowship would be the crown jewel of the new life that you've brought us together with in this church, that it would glorify you in everything that we do, that it would be what people notice when they see this community of faith. Lord, I pray that as we immerse ourselves more in your word and your Holy Spirit guides us and controls us by your word, Lord, I pray that what would result is genuine Christ-honoring fellowship. That it would be a testimony for the watching world to see. That it would be what builds one another up in your word. Lord, and as we live out our lives with faithfulness, everything that we do for your glory, Lord, I pray that we would never neglect our duty of worshiping you through our fellowship to one another. Thank you for bringing us all together. Thank you for the new selves that you have given us to put on. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.